Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 97 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Jeremy Roenick episode of the SLS Cast because Mr. Roenick himself wore the number 97 for his jersey and said jersey number has been retired he was a nhl guy and it was retired by the phoenix coyotes now the arizona coyotes for those of you who follow the nhl and or the arizona coyotes formerly the phoenix coyotes and for that completely nonsensical hockey information and all that kind of stuff i of course and Matt. So why didn't they just stay the Phoenix Coyotes? Was it such an appalling thing that the state of Arizona didn't have their own hockey team? I guess there's just not enough Arizona-themed teams like the Arizona Diamondbacks or the Arizona Cardinals. I don't know. Perhaps there just weren't enough professional sports leagues named after them. But... <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps maybe the Phoenix Suns got jealous of the Coyotes and said, you better go be Arizona something. I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all I got, though. Nice. Do you watch hockey at all? Uh, that would be a negatory, good buddy. Negatory. Do you watch any sports? I, oh, wait. Hang on. Before we go into, the, do a, into a sports bit, I do believe... It is too soon to go into another sports bit, because I think we talked about baseball for way too long, about a month ago. Uh, I watch football. Oh, you do? Uh, Texans yes. or? Fuck the Texans. No, I am Cowboys. Oh, seriously? Dead serious. I am going to pee in your beer. Really? Because your team sucks, or my team's better than yours? Why? Your, your team Your team is just whiny. Oh, they're they're whiny and they suck shit until the third quarter, but they do eventually win games. How's your team doing? <laughs> well, at least you admit that, so I won't. Uh, <laughs> oh, and I'm also anymore. one of three Dallas Cowboys fans that will fully admit that Romo is also a terrible quarterback. I hate Romo, but I got to go with my boys. Well, so, they did play a really good game against the Seattle Seahawks yesterday. Yes, it was definitely an amazing game. I am now one step closer to fulfilling. Um, my last bets for this season, which are uh, regular season overall, who will have the better record, Cowboys or the Texans? And you think it's going to be the Cowboys? I do. Yeah. I did going in. Well, <laughs> hey, the, the, Dallas has at least won a game, so. True. As a matter of fact, I think they are now two games more over than the Texans, and I love rubbing that in. Living here in Houston. Where all the Texans are like. It's fine. Yeah, it's probably going to be three games more. Then it'll probably be four games more, and <laughs> probably five. But uh, yeah, I think especially after the whooping that the Steelers were getting yesterday. Uh, th- today's the thirteenth of October. In case you couldn't tell by the games that we're talking about, for those of you who don't follow football, um, that when the Texans now have to go to the Steelers. They're in for a hurting, especially coming off losing to the Colts like that. But, eh, you know, whatever. So I was in your old hometown this past weekend. Really? So that's that's why you didn't come to my 
Star Wars viewing party that no. the fact that you're you know two thousand miles away. It was. It seemed like it sounded like it was a, or it seemed as in it read like it was a success. Yeah, here. it was definitely fun. Uh, the bulk of the people showed up on Sunday, uh, so we had football going on in one room with the movies going on in the other room, and the kids running around and playing, and then I'm grilling up tons of steaks and pork chops and all sorts of fun stuff. And, and this this was at your apartment. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, so, like, each room had a different screen in it, depending on what people were <laughs> yeah, going to watch. what was going on. And, uh, and each room also had a different scream in it as well, depending on whether it was kids screaming or people screaming at the movie because of whatever reason, or a whole bunch of guys screaming at the, the, you know, at the football uh, action that was playing in certain people's favor or whatnot. So, yeah, it was... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, honestly, though, it was definitely a lot of fun. Although, before you get to your Seattle thing, because Seattle thing, because this is the only other thing cool that happened, I started watching uh, To Kill a Mockingbird this evening. Oh, the one with uh, Atticus Ross, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the remake with Atticus Ross. And <laughs> so we're sitting down, and the girls decided to come on in and say, Oh, Dad, what are, Daddy, what are you watching? And I was like, Oh, I'm watching a movie called To Kill a Mockingbird. Why is it called To Kill a Mockingbird? I was like, Well, why don't you sit down and watch? So they did. And they were actually, and I think because it has it's so kid-centric from the point of view and how the movie plays out, that they were they were actually sitting down and watching it. And they were really scared. Though. Oh, what does Boo Radley look like? Ah, right? But the coolest thing was, Libby's like, you know, I really like this movie. And I'm like, well, that's great, babe. And she's like, I just wish it wasn't gray. So I, you know, thought that was pretty, pretty cute. And, uh, <laughs> wasn't gray? Oh, yeah. as in it's black and white. Correct. Yeah. She just wished it wasn't gray. And that's when you pause the movie and say, Libby, we need to talk. Yeah. I was like, sweetheart, there's a reason why it's black and white. It's called black and white. And black and white is good. So... Has she ever seen Wizard of Oz? She has. She has. She saw Wizard of Oz and she saw Oz the Great and Powerful. So she's familiar with the concept of black and white, but not actually seeing an entire movie in black and white. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So. And she didn't know. Anyways, so, so yeah. So you're in my old stomping grounds where I taught you about SeaTac. Seattle, yeah, that's Tacoma, right, SeaTac. Tacoma, Seattle. Because I foolishly called it Tacoma, <laughs> Seattle, and apparently that is a that is a dead giveaway that I am a tourist if I say Tacoma, Seattle. Yes. Which I appreciate the full paragraph of <laughs> of comment you left me <laughs> in explaining that. <laughs> well, I didn't want you to think I was just fucking around. I mean, it's like that's a legit thing. People don't. I mean, I don't know why. Tacoma's got amazing views. It's got great central downtown revitalized. It's been revitalized in the last twelve years. Uh, they, they've got uh, this amazing restaurant. It's one of the best restaurants, steakhouse restaurants I've ever eaten. It's called Stanley and Seaforts, and it's up off of Thirty Eighth, and it overlooks oh, yeah. the entirety that. of Tacoma going into the Sound. I mean, there's tons of good things about Tacoma but it's just always treated like the redheaded stepchild of the Seattle so everybody always thinks Seattle 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 it's called the SeaTac airport you go to the SeaTac mall you do well you don't go to the SeaTac mall anymore because um Federal Way is like that was the white flight area when I was living there and now the white flight area has gone even further north and so yeah it's not quite as fun in Federal Way anymore but uh are you referencing like the three-story mall they have there now? 
God, is it three stories now? I don't know. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, like on, on your way to the airport, the SeaTac airport. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, it's like they have a Palais Royale that's three stories. Do you do you seriously need a Palais Royale <laughs> that is three stories? I question the validity of needing a Palais Royale at all. But uh, you know, that's just or even me. like I, I would love to see a place where there's like a four story TJ Maxx. It's like, God, I do need four stories of that. <laughs> uh, but yes, I was in Seattle, and, you know, I, I realized that Seattle is sexier than, I think, what people let on it to be, really. I mean, it's a pretty sexy town, I gotta say. I mean, you have your Seattle Seahawks fans that are constantly wearing their Seahawks attire, all the time. I, I, I spent uh, downtown or Friday uh, in downtown Seattle with my cousin, and we just kept seeing people walking by with their jerseys and stuff on, and they weren't even playing. It was a soccer game going on that night. It was bizarre. But when I how I say that Seattle is sexier is because they have something called a bikini coffee drive-in or a bikini drive-in. I think is what it's called. Are you familiar with that at all, Matt? No. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, you should be. In fact, you will now be familiar with it, and you will not forget this. So uh, I got picked up from uh, from the airport, and my cousin, he's like, oh, hey, you know, we're driving around catching up, and we're going into Tacoma. He's like, oh, hey, do you want some coffee? I know a, a really good coffee place. I was like, yeah, you know, that sounds really good. Hell, I'm in Seattle. Why not uh, enjoy a uh, dark roasted, you know, cup of Seattle Joe? Sure, bring it on, dude. And he's like, okay, well, I will take you to my favorite place to go to. Starbucks? No. And he just, he, it's like he scolded me a little bit, you know, just like, you know, just, no. Smiled, you know. So I didn't really pick up on it at the time, but looking back on that conversation, I realized that, you know, there was, it, there was that, like, inner monologue within him where it's like, you know, j just you wait. Just you wait. And so we pull up in this little shopping center, you know, like your little suburban shopping area that's been around since maybe 1982. And it's this little bitty coffee hut. And I didn't, I don't know what it was called. I didn't look at the sign at all. And we pull up and it's super tiny. And I'm looking at the menu. There's the menu outside. And, you know, he was like, so what, what coffee do you want, Tim? He's like, well, you know, let's see. There's the Americano. There's this. I noticed that they're serving like bagels and stuff there, but it's noon i don't need a bagel you know coffee sounds good so i'm about to pick up my coffee and i was like you know i think i'm gonna go with the americano americano sounds good he's like oh tim well you ought to look again look, look a little bit closer you know maybe you want something else and i look over at him and he's smiling like he's waiting it's like he's waiting for me to see something and he's like just look, look through the window look through the drive through window and i look and the reason why it's called a bikini drive-through is because there are these stripper-quality women that work there, and they wear bikinis. But these coffee places around this particular Air Force base, they do not wear bikinis. In fact, they wear nothing at all. I mean, all I saw when I looked through that window was ass. Coffee and ass. And I look over at my cousin, and he's just, like, like just getting a kick out of my facial expression. And my ex facial expression was like, what the, f what the, like, what the hell? Like, I was totally off guard. Was not expecting that, because not only is this, is this chick wearing nothing, 
giving me coffee, but really the first thing that popped in my head, not like probably 89% of guys would be like, oh, wow, man, that's hot. You know, this is awesome. This is the best coffee place. The first thing that popped in my head was not that. It was, how the hell is this not a health code violation? I mean, her, her ass, her big fat ass, is at food level with all the bagels. I mean, how does that pass yeah. the health See, inspection? That's, that's kind of where I was. I was like, hmm... Not so sure. As as appealing as that might visually be, I also have to wonder, I don't know, do I really want the ass coffee or the ass bagels? A bleached bum can only go so far. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's flakes, there's... I'm telling you, know, you, you know. Poots travel far, and I would not want it to end up on my cream cheese, to be honest. And who knows where the cream cheese comes from? Exactly, yeah. Or the yeast for the bread products, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yeast. Uh, yeah, yeasty, yeasty, yeasty. Free hanging and free flowing. Hmm. And so I went back, I went on to Yelp that night to see uh, the reviews. And of course, it's all dudes, you know, writing about this coffee shop. And the funny thing is, is that none of them mention the, uh, the I guess, sexiness of it. Like, they don't mention it at all. So I guess so, like, their wives or their girlfriends don't know anything about it. And it's funny, because, like, really the best comments on there are like, you know, this place has some really good coffee. Yeah, I highly recommend it. The girls are really nice, and the coffee is delicious. Yes. So that was my Seattle-Tacoma experience right there. Boobs and coffee. Right on. Right on. All right. Well, are you ready to move on to the news, then? Yes. All right, folks, then let's do it. Here we go. It's the news. All right. So you want to start or do you want me to start? You can go ahead. Okie then. All right, first up from ScreenRant.com, courtesy of Sandy Schaefer. Spielberg and Hanks begin filming Coen Brothers' scripted Cold War thriller. Generally, Joel and Ethan Coen, a.k.a. the Coen Brothers, direct the scripts they penned. But recently, they lent their writing talents to other directors on a pair of historical fact-based dramas. The first is Angelina Jolie's Unbroken, which arrives this Christmas and tells the story of the late Olympian-turned-World War II soldier and then POW, Louis Zamperini. The other is a currently untitled Steven Spielberg project that takes place around the peak of the Cold War. Originally, it was reported that the Coens were just polishing a script by Matt Charman, or Charmin, on the Spielberg film. However, in the official DreamWorks press release announcing the start of production on the project, which will shoot in New York and Berlin, the Coens are credited for the screenplay, while Charmin is noted for having delivered the original pitch. What do you think? Are, are we ready for yet another World War II film with the amazing team of Spielberg and Hanks? After Band of Brothers, after, of course, you know, you've got Saving Private Ryan, and then Band of Brothers, and then The Pacific. Uh, are we ready for yet another? Sure, why not? I mean, there, there are a l- many stories to tell, and they tell them well, I think. And it seems like at least between The Pacific and Band of Brothers, there is enough uh, 
difference between the two, you know, to keep them interesting. Right on. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, there are just, that is the nice thing is that it is rife with material. I just often wonder if there are other cool stories we could be telling with such amazing people like Spielberg and Hanks now that you've even got writing with Joel and Ethan Cohen. So cool. All right. What do you got for us, sir? Okay, I have a couple things that pertain to Batman. Uh, the first one is uh, about Michael Keaton. This is from CBS News from an article entitled, Michael Keaton Takes Wing in Birdman. And this is what it says. Michael Keaton is 63 years old. He now has a new movie coming out and an interesting story to tell to Lee Cowan in the Sunday Profile. And uh, well, I guess this is uh, an interview that they did on CBS. When I said that we were going to come chat, said Cowan, these pretty hardcore fans of yours said, Oh my gosh, where has he been? We want to see more of him. Do you get that a lot? And then when you were driving out here, you went, Yeah, where has he been? Laughed Keaton. Where, actor Michael Keaton has been, is remote. It's close to nothing, except perhaps heaven. For the past 25 years, he has made Montana his home, big sky country with big thunderstorms to match. It's his home on the range, where the deer and the antelope really do play. Sure, it's worlds away from Hollywood, though, isn't it? Said Cowan. Is that kind of the point? Yeah, but I'm not one of those, you know, I hate Hollywood guys. I don't know how not to live like this. But his latest role in the film Birdman has him more engaged than ever and has some people even talking about the Oscars. But more importantly, the article goes on where it talks about Michael Keaton and his experience with Batman. He was asked if there was any problem with him playing, uh, with, with him before being Mr. Mom in the movie Mr. Mom, then going on to portray Batman in the first Batman movie by Tim Burton in 1980, uh, in the late 1980s. And Keaton says this, it never occurred to me that it would be an issue one way or another. I mean, to this day, I think it's funny. Now I dig it. Now I love it. I really think it's awesome. But there were like petitions, right? People were writing to Warner Brothers and saying, Oh, no, you can't have Mr. Mom play Batman. Yeah, villagers with torches coming to get me. Batman went on to be one of the biggest grossing films of the decade. Batman Returns was too. But when it came time for Batman 3, Keaton bowed out even after being offered a reported $15 million to do it. What was it about 3 that you just didn't like, asked Cowan. Sucked. Yeah, I guess that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, it was just awful. Keaton never really disappeared. He's pretty much been as busy as he's wanted to be. He couldn't resist doing the voice of Barbie's Ken in Toy Story 3, but nothing, not even Batman, has been as demanding as his upcoming film Birdman. The film is shot in long, unbroken takes. It takes place more like a theater production than a movie. The most important thing I wanted to talk about this article is that he had the chance to do Batman 3 for $15 million. $15 million. That is insane. That is crazy. And I guess it also... Uh, he also didn't want to do Batman 3 without Tim Burton. I remember reading that uh, beforehand. But $15 million, and also the script sucked. Well, good for him. In other Batman news, real quick, Joel Schumacher took part in a little Q&A with Variety's Raman Setuda. This was uh, from October 11th of this year. 
And this Q&A was held at the Hamptons Film Festival this past weekend, where he was accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award in directing. And it wasn't until later on when he finally talked about his Batman movies, which included 1995's Batman Forever and 1997's Batman and Robin. And these are some selected uh, portions of this interview. Your Batman movies aren't as dark as Christopher Nolan's. Schumacher. I was never able to go into the darkness. Because of Batman Returns, families had objected that it was too adult, which is no criticism of Tim Burton's. When they offered it to me, I went to Tim and said, this is your franchise and they want me to do it. I won't do it if you don't want me to. He said, take it, please, I can't do another one. Even though Batman Forever is really sexy, it was a movie the whole family could see. You introduced nipples to the Batsuit. Were you surprised they became so controversial? Yes, I was like, are you kidding me? I think that will be on my gravestone. It's how I'll be remembered. But Batman Forever was a box office hit. It was the biggest movie of the year and the cheapest Batman ever made. It cost under $100 million with Val Kilmer, Nicole Kidman, and Jim Carrey. They were all still coming up. Batman Forever was a total passion. My bosses let me change Batman. Jim was inspired as the Riddler. Tommy Lee Jones played Harvey Two-Face. Drew Barrymore was even in it. Then came Batman and Robin. Was it your idea to cast George Clooney as Batman? No. Val left at the 11th hour to do The Island of Dr. Moreau. It changed everything. George made a noble effort. I was the problem with Batman and Robin. I never did a sequel to any of my movies, and sequels are only made for one reason, to make more money and sell more toys. I did my job, but I never got my ass in the seat right. Why? Well, they immediately wanted a sequel, but I said yes. There's nobody else to blame but me. I could have said, no, I'm not going to do it. I just hope whenever I see a list of the worst movies ever made, we're not on it. I didn't do a good job. George did. Chris did. Uma is brilliant in it. And Arnold is Arnold. End all quotes. Any comments on either of those two pieces, Matt? First off, I am very, very glad that there is a lot of Oscar buzz for Michael Keaton with uh, Birdman. Secondly, talk about sticking to your principles. I mean... The money has literally has damn near doubled since the time that he was offered fifteen million. I mean, could you imagine turning down a thirty million dollar payday on principle? I mean, that's just holy shit. That's amazing. Uh, and finally, I'm just glad that Schumacher, you know, owned up to it. That good on him. You know, it's, it's a shame that he destroyed the franchise for like a decade or so. But other than that, good on him. All right. So for me. Next up, from MSN.com, courtesy of ET Online, actually. Uh, Turns out that Shia LaBeouf talks scary jail time. They put a Hannibal mask on me. That's the actual headline, folks, and it doesn't get any better from there. Yes, Shia LaBeouf is crediting his night in jail. Please remember night in jail, okay? Uh, To getting him out of his quote, existential crisis, end quote. But as he points out, this particular time behind bars, he went, quote, 
all the way, end quote. Over the past year, the Fury actor has made headlines with plagiarism accusations, his I'm Not Famous Anymore performance art piece, and more recently his outburst at a cabaret performance in New York. Quote, I went through, like, an existential crisis, end quote, LaBeouf28 told Ellen DeGeneres. Quote, which turned into some explorations. I had some hiccups, some judgment errors, end quote. Yes, the Transformers star then admitted that it was his jail time that made him rethink his life choices. Here it is. Now, I I was reading this in pre-show, and I think I got all the laughs out. I'm pretty sure I got all the laughs out, so I'm going to go over this in a straight shot. Here we go. Quote, as he recalled, quote, Jail was quite scary. I was there for, it felt like forever. I think 24 hours, 25 hours. I really went all the way with it. They put a Hannibal mask on me and a lead jacket. It was it was very scary, end quote. <laughs> Look, I made it through without laughing, but now I'm laughing. Why all the fuss? Quote, I spit on a cop. That's a no-no. I'm sorry if you're watching, dude. I'm sorry. That was crazy, man. End quote. Um... Yeah, I'm not going to read the rest of this article. There's not a whole lot left to read, but uh, do we? Do, does anybody really think we're done? That that I personally, <laughs> I don't know what kind of a transformative experience 24 and a half, 25 hours in jail is going to do for you when you have millions of dollars in the bank and no self control. Um, what? Do, where do you land on this one, Tim? I hope. I hope he means it but then again this is the same guy that said he was retiring from uh from filmmaking and uh he did not so i I don't know man it's just this stuff is annoying like it's so goofy and why the hell they put a hannibal lecter mask on him that's that's what i want to know because he spit on a cop they have like because when when you do the spitting thing they have uh like I don't know if it's truly a Hannibal Lecter mask, but they do have like nets and stuff and, and hoods that they put on you. I've, I've seen in like, you know, an episode of Cops or whatever. Um, I think there's even one on True TV for like LA County Jail or something. And yeah, they definitely they have hoods and all sorts of restraint stuff for if you're a spitter. And I guess you decided to do that. Yeah, I read something a couple days ago that during uh, filming of his upcoming film, uh, he had to, like, his character. You know, has like these scratches on his face, and so throughout the movie, instead of having makeup apply like a prosthetic or put makeup on him, he scratched the shit out of his face. And every time before he had a close-up shot or basically just a shot of him, he would sit there and reopen the scab and make it bleed and make it look make it all fresh and and bloody again. It's like, man, that that's just a little too far, I think. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Okay, well, in light of that, I'm thinking we're not done. I'm <laughs> totally thinking we're not done. All right, what else do you got, sir? All right, this is from The Guardian here, uh, and it turns out that China decided to implement some, I guess, moral regulations on their uh, film actors here. Uh, this is from an article, again, from The Guardian, uh, entitled, China bans actors with a history of drug use from film or TV roles. 
Chinese stars with a history of drug use or involvement with prostitution will be banned from appearing on film or television in the latest fallout from Beijing's ongoing moral crackdown, reports Foreign Policy magazine. Officials from the State Administration of Press, Publication, Radio, Film, and Television, which is S-A-R-F-T, or SARFT, are said to have ordered cinemas and TV networks to halt all screenings of movies featuring stars with morally dubious past. The move follows the September 17th arrest of Jackie Chan's son, JC, for allegedly smoking marijuana at his apartment. The actor, Huang Heibond, director Wang Quanan, were arrested in May and September, respectively on suspicion of having sex with prostitutes. Citing a piece on the Chinese website Natis, foreign policy reports that more than 40 performing arts organizations in Beijing have also agreed not to employ actors with an alleged history of drug use. Sarved said it has introduced the new regulations because actors corrupted the social atmosphere through their behavior and created a detrimental influence on the development of many young people. And all quotes there. Risque news that has just broke over there. So, uh, uh, what do you think? You made an interesting comment earlier when I mentioned that I was going to be talking about this. <laughs> if you if you'd like to state that again, yes, I, I I just want I was just wondering aloud. I I'm so I'm thinking we're not going to be seeing uh, or Charlie Sheen's not going to be in any movies over in China. I'm thinking they're not going to hire him for anything in the near future. Well, it does say this, that there is no suggestions that the new regulations will apply to actors based outside of China. However, the moral crackdown rather calls into question Chinese authorities' ongoing love affair with Hollywood, which would lose many of its major stars if it followed the same rules. And key word there is many of its favorite stars. So, yeah... I think that kind of says a little bit of something about, you know, American cinema right there. All right. Well, cool beans. Uh, Let's see here. I have two stories left, so one's really quick here. Um, From HollywoodReporter.com, courtesy of Natalie Jarvie. Uh, David Spade developing Joe Dirt's sequel for Sony's Crackle. The film will have a home on digital. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the 2001 film about a custodian who becomes an unlikely hero is getting a sequel exclusively on Sony's over-the-top network, Crackle. Production on Joe Dirt 2 begins in November on location in Louisiana, Crackle announced Friday. The film is scheduled to debut on all Crackle platforms in 2015. Um, Quote, I'm beyond stoked that Joe Dirt will finally hit the screens again on Crackle. I've been sleeping in this wig for years, and it will be nice to wear it in the daytime again. End quote. That's, of course, from David Spade. Um, yeah. What are you, uh, you, you happy about this? Um, I know he had mentioned on, he had mentioned in an AMA on Reddit a while back that he had specifically mentioned Crackle and that he was looking for a non traditional way to get the sequel off the ground. Do you think it's just too late, or does it really matter since it's going to be fun and what the people want on something that will hopefully allow people to make their money back? Sure, you know, if it's what people want, yeah, I mean, like, why? I mean, and you have the venue to do it, why not? I mean, especially if uh, I, I think we're in a in a transformative time for film distribution or movie distribution. 
So it'll be interesting to see how much freedom that they really have on sites like Crackle and Netflix and Amazon. So, I don't know, it's it's interesting, so we'll see how it goes. Right on, right on. All right, what else do you have, sir? From Bleeding Cool News, Chris Claremont on why X-Men writers aren't allowed to create new characters. Chris Claremont talked with Lynn Wine, Mark Bernardin, and Heath Corson about his and Lynn's history in comic books a few months ago at Phoenix Comic-Con for the Nerdist podcast. Something unreported, however, until now, was when Chris Claremont was asked about creating new characters for the X-Men franchise. And Chris Claremont said this, I have to say quite honestly, as I understand it now, the X department is forbidden to create new characters. Shock response. Well, who owns them? He's asked. All because all new characters become the film property of Fox. There will be no X-Men merchandising for the foreseeable future because why promote Fox material? End all quotes. Uh, you know, this it's kind of sad to do this to a franchise. I mean, we may, I mean, honestly, we might not ever get a full movie with all these characters how it should be. I mean, there is talk that there will be a Spider-Man crossover movie with X-Men or something, but I don't even think that's actually going to happen. Who knows? Is this somewhat bothersome to you, Matt, or...? Okay, I think between all of the Marvel shit they've got going on and this extended Marvel universe that they have happening, I think I think they've got enough of their own problems that they don't that this is probably a blessing in disguise i think any kind of limitations on superhero movies is good as much as most of them i'm enjoying and i'm and i'm at least interested in seeing how this further develops in terms of you know when you get your ant-mans and and what have you's moving down the line i really think this is a blessing in disguise it limits the ability to completely overplay this and keeps the window even if it's just a crack open for new ips and just different kinds of movies so i'm not really as flummoxed about it as perhaps maybe marvel is right on cool all right and this is going to do it for me from hollywoodreporter.com courtesy of abid ramon john cleese quits movies says he's looking forward to death Quote, I have only got five or six years left and I will be gone. I won't have to worry about ISIS or Ebola. <laughs> End quote, says Hex Python. Uh, British, actor, British actor and comedian John Cleese. See, I, I, I heard him today doing a eulogy that he did when, oh, good God, what's his face from my, Python passed away? Graham Chapman. Thank you, Chapman, yeah. And he referred to himself as Cleese. And I always thought it was Cleese. Uh, I don't know, so I'm just kind of like, whatever. Um, but at any rate, says he's rather looking forward to the prospect of dying because, quote, most of the best people are dead. I will be an excellent company having a wonderful time, end quote. Uh, aside from dissing Taylor Swift's cat, which Tim told me about and I thought was absolutely fucking hilarious, uh, Cleese 74 has recently been busy promoting his autobiography, So Anyway, and he made the darkly comic comment, comic comments at a promotional event at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, The Mirror, reported on Sunday. 
Cleese's famed absurdist humor came through when he said the fears of the modern world would would no longer plague him when he dies. Quote, again, I've only got five or six years left and I will be gone. I won't have to worry about ISIS or Ebola. I'm looking forward to it. End quote. Uh, with the time remaining, Cleese says he won't, uh, he won't be making any movies. And he likely disappointed his legions of fans around the world when he ruled out a movie follow-up to A Fish Called Wanda and Fierce Creatures. Quote, no, because it's too much like hard work. It's a two and three and quarter years, and I'm too old for that process, end quote. He said when asked about a possible follow-up film. Quote, if I started on it now, I would die, end quote. And finally, Cleese also revealed that the members of Monty Python, the legendary comedy troupe that first made his name, were never, quote, huge friends, end quote. Cleese said, quote, the key to understanding Python now is we have all driven off in completely different directions. Michael, as you know, makes those travel programs that I put on anytime I can't sleep. Eric Idle is very good at lyrics, so he is writing songs. Terry Gilliam is off trying to raise money for one of his plotless extravagances. And Jonesy is just insane. He writes children's books and recently went to Lisbon and directed an opera about vacuum cleaners. End all quotes. Um, so aside from the fact that it seems John Cleese and I agree a little bit on Terry Gilliam, what do you think about all these revelations? Tim? He said with a Shatner-esque pause. Uh, John Cleese <laughs> is John Cleese, and he will always be John Cleese, very cynical and... He's always been a senile old man, and after reading Michael Palin's journals that he published some time ago, and it covered all of Python and any chronicles the relationship that he's had, a lot with Terry Gilliam and, and John Cleese, and Terry Jones, but there's some really interesting stuff about John Cleese in that it just seems like he's always been the same guy. Kind of difficult to work with, although he is very funny, and very, very, very smart. And it always seems like after uh, Graham Chapman passed away, you know, he was kind of already over things. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's fine with him not doing a follow-up to Fierce Creatures and A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Fierce Creatures was an okay movie, but it was no A Fish Called Wanda. So, you know, I really do think there is some truth. I don't think it's as dramatic as the way he's... Uh, describing his reasoning but you know i think there's there's truth to him getting old and you know he's doing good at just criticizing people which is is funny you know that's his style of comedy all right right on well there you go man that's all i got well then i guess that concludes the news and brings us to discussions with matt and tim this time on Discussions with Matt and Tim. We review and discuss the Yahoo.com article from the movie section, courtesy of Ethan Alter. Life after Blockbuster. Catching up with the owner of some of the last remaining Blockbuster video stores. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Alrighty. Yes, yes, yes. So, life after Blockbuster. Catching up with the owner of some of the last remaining Blockbuster video stores. A very interesting article, I must say. Um, 
This is about a gentleman who actually runs uh, more than 20 of the remaining 50 stores, roughly 50 stores, that basically they're not franchisees anymore. They're simply licensees. They, They simply pay to use the name, although I'm not really sure why they would bother. It seems like they could save the licensing money and just slap up a new sign that says Joe's Video. Um... But yeah, he, this it talks about how this guy has he he has stores in uh, Texas and Alaska, and these are like in small towns where people have limited uh, internet access or where streaming is cost prohibitive due to the way that there's there's just so far out in the middle of nowhere that it's just not worth it to have internet for the purposes of streaming. Uh, they still have to he still has to know his clientele base so like in in uh texas it's more about certain kinds of movies whereas in alaska it's more about the tv series that they that they snap up and yet he says the the guy here his name is alan payne uh he he even goes on to say that even though he's still doing okay he knows that there's pretty much no bottom to the uh to to the to the barrel that is the fall of renting renting movies, DVDs, uh, entertainment because people will be able to get more and more from their streaming and from their devices or getting it on the internet and ordering it cheaper than they could rent it or what have you and he pretty much doesn't plan to even have 20 stores (laughs) within the next 10 years I found it overall to be very interesting and yet, at the same time, inevitable. So, I don't know. What What were your thoughts when you read about this here initially, Tim? Inevitable, pretty much. I, and it's kind of it's kind of sad that in twenty years, this is going to be one of those things where kids are going to grow up. Like, there's going to be ten year olds that are going to be like, "What's Blockbuster? What's a videotape? What is renting?" What do you mean by what? What do you mean by renting a movie? Who who would want to rent a movie when I can just watch it on my holographic phone device? <laughs> Stuff like that. My holographic phone device. I'm gonna do like the Total Recall thing, the Total Recall remake, you know, where the phone's embedded in their hand. Is that is that what's up? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you haven't? You still haven't seen it? Oh no. my gosh, you got it. If for nothing else, you have to watch it for that. It's it's actually pretty handy. Uh, <laughs> no, no pun intended. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that this guy is. It, it seems to me that if this is how he truly feels, then why the hell doesn't he sell? Because if he's making money and he's able to remain profitable with all of these stores, it seems like he would be able to cash out now before he hits the bottom of the barrel and closes. Because he already, even the article says he's had to close stores. Uh, even in this last year, I think he said he had to close like three stores. It just doesn't seem to be, I don't know, maybe I almost got the feeling like he was trying to undersell it so people wouldn't try to compete with him, uh, you know. Maybe it's hope. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> or maybe it could be he, he's maybe one of the few people that, uh, well, it seems like one of the few people that actually might do things because it's the principle of the matter. It's the principle of the thing. You know, it's just maybe trying to hang on to that one bit piece of 
of, uh, of of history. And I don't know. It's what's interesting here is in the closing paragraph it says it says this: a strong inventory, attractive pricing, and cost-saving measures have helped Payne hang onto his stores even as Blockbuster itself fades away. As for the rest of the stores on the online list, the status seems uneven. We called all 50 and found at least 10 had non-working phone numbers, including four Payne has closed. And uh, then at the very end, he does mention what you touched on a while ago, where Payne says that there won't be 23 stores two years from now. There's a sea change going on, and we've managed to survive it better than other. But I don't see it bottoming out anywhere. When people start losing that connection with the physical product, the idea of going to the store to rent that physical product weakens as well. In Tacoma this past weekend, I saw a Blockbuster, but it wasn't really a Blockbuster. It had the B, but all the others were like either upside down or like sideways. And it looked like it was done on purpose because this was, you know, this was like a sign that was pretty far up there. And also, it was the store. The Blockbuster sign on the store was all jacked up. So, I don't know. I don't know if maybe people are now going to be changing Blockbuster stores and making it something else. Or, I wonder if he even has, like, the right to alter the name any and able to call it something else. Now, it's just a, it's a very interesting thing that he's doing. Because this is definitely something that will not last forever. I mean, with every new generation, they take on the next best thing, you know, the, the most convenient thing. And I'm even surprised now people really like records and still go out and buy records and are interested in record players and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's not like with TVs or entertainment. I mean, people love... And we kind of talked about this before. People love watching TVs on their, on their, on their, on their phones... And listening to music on their phones, but people will still watch movies on TVs without headphones, with a surround sound, with their TV speakers or whatever. But I think this is something that will definitely not last too much longer because people with Vudu and Netflix and Amazon, especially with uh, their own premium content, there's not going to be a reason to go out and go to the video store. I mean, when was the last time you actually rented a movie from Blockbuster or Hollywood Video or any place like that? Uh, the last time was... I want, It was sometime in 2012. I can't remember what... There was a particular movie I was looking for and it was something that had been out like four or five years previously. And I was like, man, I really feel like watching this movie and I don't want to go buy it. And of course, it wouldn't have been available at a Best Buy or anything anyway. So I went down to a Blockbuster and I found it and rented it. I'm honest, maybe it was 1408? John Cusack and everything, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it might have been that. But, yeah. Uh, however, for whatever it's worth, I did rent uh, Paul Blart Mall Cop from Amazon. Rented that for, like, two ninety nine or whatever. Or maybe it was three ninety nine because it was I got an HD. Oh, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I do that, too. I did that with uh, Tenembre, Dario John Argento's uh, Tenembre. Uh, because I was able to find that on that deep right, I was able to find one on Vudu, and the other one on Amazon Prime. So, I mean, that stuff comes in handy. I can definitely see it. that's going to stay for a while. But I even think Redbox will become obsolete somewhat soon because they Redbox just recently 
uh, they tried to do uh, streaming movies, and they got rid of that within the past couple weeks. <laughs> that's because that's because Verizon just used the Redbox branding for it. Uh, it's just because Verizon sucks ass as a cable provider, <laughs> and nobody wanted their stupid shit because they charge for every fucking thing. Um, yeah, that, but that's okay. For whatever it's worth, though, Coinstar owns Redbox. So every time you dump into a green box, you're supporting a Redbox. Really? Bum bum bum. Yeah. What? Coinstar? Like, was it like out of convenience? Because <laughs> they're always <laughs> right next to each other. Uh, do, does Coinstar always open? But yeah, the, the the company that owns Coinstar is the same one who started Redbox. There. Really? Oh, they started the it. Company. Yeah. Now, what would what would be kind of cool is uh, does that company also own the uh, the water distribution little machine thing that you put your little gallon oh. tub in there? <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. Yeah, I, that'd I don't be remember awesome. all that aspect. I own that. The three things that everybody sees when they're usually leaving a grocery store: Redbox, Coinstar, and your water thing nice yes are we discussed out is that is that have we discussed it up this uh, to, to the point of no return I think so I, I mean I don't know is there anything else we can add, anything to to add? I don't think so I think we have effectively run this into the ground yeah I think I think that the I think that our train of thought has derailed uh, women children screaming newscaster oh the humanity Thus concludes <laughs> discussions with Matt and Tim. I can't even do the voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, all right. So next week we're going to be doing a three squared. And it's a three squared that we kind of touched on a long, long time ago. So we thought we would bring it back just for fun, um, especially given that it's, you know, the Halloween season. Uh, we have done our favorite heroes. We've done our favorite villains. Now, we're doing a three squared for next week, which will be our least favorite villains. And it could be because we just don't like them, or because maybe the acting was bad, the casting choice was poor. For whatever reason, these are our picks for the worst villains. And that'll be next week for the bonus segment. Which now leaves us with, of course... Well, at least people learn something about Coinstar. Well, I'm here to help, not to hurt. That is my motto. But, yeah. So it looks like our movies for this week, originally scheduled, were The Judge, Repulsion, uh, don't look now and the loved ones however due to some miscommunication and travel and not paying attention to notes that we had created planning out the entire month of October so good on us right we have a bonus movie Dracula Untold so where do you want to start first sir the judge the judge alright 
Okay, so The Judge is the 2014 American drama film. It's directed by David Dobkin and stars Robert Downey Jr., uh, Robert Duvall, and then has appearances from the likes of Vera Farmiga, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Dax Shepard, and even Billy Bob Thornton. Um, all right, so we've got a hugely successful criminal defense attorney, Hank Palmer. Uh, he's one of the best defense attorneys in Chicago. He is in the midst of defending someone uh, who has embezzled $140 million and all sorts of wonderful crap. He's just a pretty much a piece of crap dude that he's defending. Hank Palmer's not that much better. Uh, he has a uh, what people believe to be a great marriage, but it's falling apart. Um, he loves his daughter. He's estranged from his father, and his mother dies. So he must go back to at least attend the funeral and make sure, at least for as best as he can, that uh, things are established so that he can go home. When it turns out that his father gets arrested for hitting someone with his car in the middle of the night, that turns out to be someone he had sentenced to jail who got out and then murdered again. Now, this is a movie that is very well written, very nicely directed, amazingly acted, and does nothing to bring anything new to the table. It is completely full of every trope that is imaginable, um, but it is... It's, it was still entertaining to watch. There is really nothing that I can say uh, that would add to this film in terms of anything you haven't ever heard before. If you like Robert Downey Jr., if you like Robert Duvall, you're going to like this movie. Uh, because it is well done. And especially for people who have the... Uh, who, who have estranged relationships in their lives. It's going to touch... It's gonna, you know, touch you in the in that way and make you reminiscent or make you, uh, you know, tug at the heartstrings and whatnot. And that's what a good film should do. I would, however, recommend not seeing this movie on a holiday, in the middle of the day, with the ability for people over forty, who this movie is specifically targeted to, to come and watch because you will get exactly the picture that's in your head. Oh, honey, is he going to actually... I know exactly why he's going to do that. Would you shut the fuck up? People are trying to watch a movie here. Were there a lot of Jews seeing that movie in Spring, Texas? No, it's just the the lady who just... I mean, just the complete stereotypical, you know, mom sound is sitting there talking to her husband in the background, you know, laughing at every stupid little joke uh, that that is really just chuckle-worthy. You know, you hear the... The guy kind of blowing his nose at the, you know, scripted sad parts or whatever. Um, you know, and basically just kind of annoying. And then you hear other old people doing older people things and whatever. Um, oh, I, I, I'm just going to stop there. 3.75. It is a good movie. I did enjoy this movie. I enjoyed it pretty well. But it just doesn't bring anything to the table. As I said before, well-acted, well-directed, well-scripted, um, but nothing new. 3.75. Shall we venture on to Dracula? Yes, yes. Uh, why don't you go ahead and lead us off, sir? 
Alright, in a nutshell, Dracula Untold is actually a untold story of the origins of Dracula. And this movie would have been completely... Well, I think it would have been better if it was going to be made by the original director. And I forgot his name. Alex Proyas? Yes. That exactly. Yes. Originally, Alex Proyas, the director of one of my all-time favorite sci-fi movies, Dark City was supposed to make this movie um, a few years back. But for one reason or another, it didn't didn't work out. He wanted to make a, a Dracula story about Vlad the Impaler. And really, this movie isn't about Vlad the Impaler because all the stuff that happens takes place after all of the unpa- impaling when he decides to be a better human being, a better husband, a father, and... A, a better leader, a trustworthy leader, a good leader that doesn't in, impale people with, you know, on sharp things. And, of course, as you probably know from the trailers, he uh, encounters a vampire and, you know, decides to become the, you know, what you know as the Dracula character to defeat the uh, the Turks, right? Yes, 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 indeed, it is the Turks. Yeah, uh, in order to defeat the Turks, who are pretty much about to, you know, kill everybody in his, uh, in within his kingdom, his town, his village, uh, kingdom village towns, and uh, and there you go. The idea of the movie is interesting, until I found out they were planning on making a Avengers-style series of movies, where later on in the like modern set time era. Uh, era Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, and the Wolfman are going to team up and fight crime. You even get to see a Nick Fury character there at the end of Dracula Untold, where uh, he's apparently going to be the guy that assembles all these different movie horror creatures. But I'm not going to go into really any more detail. So uh, that annoyed me at first, until later on I, I found out that the plan to make... Uh, to go in that direction didn't happen until post-production of Dracula Untold. Uh, that is when they decided to go back, reshoot some scenes, and that is when they d- went ahead and reshot the last three, four minutes of the movie uh, that you see on the screen now. Which, honestly, doesn't help this movie much. It's ugly to look at. It's a very muddled film. You really don't get to see the scope of the movie and honestly i think that's what it was missing it was missing scope it felt like every time there was a shot of somebody um there were maybe you know it was supposed to be like a party scene and it felt like there were only like 10 extras in the scene when there's supposed to be all these people you have the bad guys who are obviously the bad guys doing bad guy things Oh, I guess there's a little bit of tension in the movie, and there is a little bit of, I guess, what people call epicness to the movie, to where there is some thrills to it, there is some heart, there is some touching moments, though it is all forced, but there is some of that there, and there is an excellent um, sequence close to the end of the movie, which fuels Dracula's anger, that kind of mix up for some of the bad stuff that you see in the movie until you find out that that's the end of the movie. Like, that's kind of what it builds up to. And that's it. 
it's a, it's a little frustrating. I think they could have taken a few notes from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There could have been more of a build-up to the character. There could have been a, a more of a build-up to the climax. There wasn't really much background at all. You're just kind of thrown into the story to where you're supposed to have sympathy for this character that murdered so many people. He murdered an entire town to uh, to keep like 10 other towns safe, 10 other villages safe. And yet you're being told all this horrible stuff about Vla- about Vlad the Impaler, but yet you're supposed to feel his his sympathy and you want him to win. You you're you're rooting for him or that's what you're supposed to do. And it's just missing that key ingredient to make you care. Despite all the special effects and, and all of the uh, and the minimal excitement that is in the movie. I mean, this movie definitely has potential. It just lacked it. It didn't it, it, it needed more excitement. Uh, so I give this movie two and a half. I mean, if you just go to the movies just to sit back, eat popcorn and, and enjoy it, you'll probably give it, you know, three and a half out of five. Or possibly even four out of five. The people that I was with thoroughly enjoyed the movie. And, you know, I mean, that's cool too. But two and a half on my end. Right on. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I have to agree because with, with Tim. The only thing I would say is, while I was definitely looking forward to a really nice origin story setup, since they're trying to revitalize this franchise of Universal Monsters... I was hoping that they would do, honestly, something along the lines of the Avengers, where you have several individual stories that uh, set up a need or a reason for a team to come together. And just like Tim, I was disappointed that they decided to focus on the the combat aspect, although I have to say that they really did come up with a very inventive way to have a master vampire situation going on, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, But I really felt it was somewhat bait-and-switched, especially by the time you get to the end of the film. Uh, So, yeah. The action sequences are pretty cool. Special effects are pretty nice. Once I realized that they weren't going to give you the story and they were focusing more on the action aspect of it, um, but with very dark elements that are kind of horror-esque um, because this definitely falls into more of a dark fantasy kind of action or kind of film versus just straight up horror and I, I just kind of took the took Tim's alternate view of popcorn flick, turn the brain off and just sit back and see where it takes, see where the ride takes you and in doing so I can say I liked it. Um, it's definitely, in my opinion, it's it's on par with, if not somewhat better than Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, with, of course, the one you know with Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman, Anthony Hopkins, and Keanu Reeves. It's definitely got its drawbacks, but I think in terms of simple popcorn and watching it. Three stars. Uh, I, I definitely have to say, for me, better than okay. And it it peaked at, like, I gotta say just barely. It was almost two and three quarter stars for me. But for the action, special effects, and 
realizing that I wasn't going to get the story that I was going to get, three stars. And that's where I'll leave it. So, where do you want to turn to next, sir? Looks like we are at the horror movies for this week. Yes, we are. Would you... Uh, I, we decided to do a top-of-the-list horror movies. Uh, we mentioned this on last week's episode where we came across uh, a handful of different IMDb top horror lists. And uh, there were there were definitely a lot of interesting uh, flicks to choose from. And uh, what we have this week is uh, 1965 Repulsion, which was... Roman Polanski's first English-language film, Don't Look Now from 1973, and The Loved Ones from 2009. Um, do you want to go chronologically? or Yes. Okay, then how about yes. Repulsion from 1965? Okay, so Roman Polanski. Again, you got it. Repulsion 1965 is a psychological horror film about a manicurist who basically is just... Uh, psychotic and completely repulsed by the idea of the sexual nature of the human species. Specifically, heterosexual sexuality and even more pointedly, the male advancement upon the female in hopes of sexual gratification. This is one of those times where I really felt like they were going... Okay, I am not the biggest fan of Roman Polanski. So I'm just going to say that out front. That being said, I think this was one of those where you're... The idea is that you're supposed to be weirded out. And as a as a concept, I love that in a horror movie. I like the idea that you are weirded out, uh, repulsed, if you will, by what you're seeing because you don't understand it and you can't make sense of it. And those kinds of ideas, especially when visualized, can be extremely unsettling. And that's a good kind of horror. But I really felt that this was just more weird than unsettling. Like, she was trying too hard to be weird. And the fact that they don't, they only ever hint at what causes her to be so different and so removed from herself, and they never quite spell it out, um, doesn't really let you, I, I don't know if it was intended to be thought-provoking or if it was to, intended to be more chilling, a la The End of The Shining. Um, but I mean, it's definitely got some nice slasher-esque stuff to it. Um, it's got some good sex in there for you, good horror, especially for the 60s, which I thought, you know, was definitely pretty forthcoming there, uh, for the, for the time. But it just, I mean, it just didn't do it for me. It's got some interesting camera shots, it's got some interesting ideas that I think Polanski was trying to convey, but without any clear intent and without any real ability to give you some kind of reasoning for why the behavior is so weird just kind of left me feeling weird instead of unsettled 
two and a half stars. It was okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, this movie, I think, there's a little bit more to it than I, I guess uh, what I think maybe you took away from it. Um, this movie is about a woman who is schizophrenic, and the bulk of this movie takes place in this apartment in London. She is this Belgium girl who lives with her sister in the in a London flat. And um, the friend goes off with her boyfriend. They go on a trip. And so she's left alone with her thoughts and her feelings and her crazy emotions. And what you get from this movie is that there, that she is just not seeing demons, ghouls, or ghosts. I mean, she's not really seeing any monsters, per se. But she keeps seeing this reoccurring guy. Uh, like, there's this great... Um, one of the better uh, a person a person in the mirror behind you uh, 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 portions of the movie where you know you open you close the mirror and there's somebody there or you open the mirror and there's somebody there and it's done well it's the music is pretty good and it just it, it jived well but that's really the only guy you see um, on top of that you see hands coming out of the walls really cool uh, uh, effects where like these cracks, you see these cracks happen in the ceiling or on the walls itself. And what that is supposed to signify is that this is a woman who um, was a victim of sexual abuse. And then the reason why she is experiencing a, 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 a rape, getting raped twice is because she's, uh, I guess, reliving her past where she was sexually abused. That's why she has this weird relationship with this pretty decent guy that wants to go out with her and take her out and and, and hang out with her, has nothing but good things to say. He's not going to abuse her or anything, but yet she is very distant with them. And all of that builds to the end of the movie, and it's not like a crazy, uh, like many, uh, I, I don't want to say generic horror movies, but like, uh, say like Psycho or Alien, where the movie builds to this moment where it's like, oh, wow, oh, man, that was intense. This movie is is, is slower paced. You know, it's there's nuances to it. And you, you're learning things as the movie goes, but I think once it clicks or once you think about it, or maybe even maybe you have to watch the movie two or three times, um, if you do find it intriguing, I think this is definitely one of those movies that you can do that with. Um, you might enjoy it a little bit more, or you might be able to catch up on or catch things that you didn't uh, notice before. And this is a movie that I saw uh, once a, a while back ago, and then I saw it again. I watched it again maybe three year, three four years ago on on TCM, and uh, then I rewatched it uh, on the plane ride to uh, Seattle. And I, the movie kind of clicked while watching it the second time, and I enjoyed it more so uh, the last time I watched it. I caught more things. Uh, I, I, I noticed more what Polanski wanted to do, and I went back and, uh, or was trying to do, and I went back and read uh, some articles and some essays that people have written about uh, this movie and how it's just more than a, than a horror movie. Um, that it's actually a movie about depression. It's about schizophrenia and how that this movie is actually pretty accurate to somebody experiencing 
or who is a schizophrenic and experiences these crazy emotional outbursts because of of a traumatic past. And I just thought that was kind of fascinating. On top of that, this movie was, in a way, accidentally made. Roman Polanski was actually trying to find a way to raise money for uh, uh, another movie of his, which was actually his uh, his English, actually his uh, his second English uh, language movie that was the follow up to Repulsion, which was Cul de Sac, which came out a couple years later. And yeah, it's just interesting. He just made this movie because he needed the money, and he was broke in London, and so he made a movie that was beautifully shot, um, interestingly paced creepy especially for the 1960s i mean like what exactly what matt said i feel the same way i mean you got the sex you got the uh the subject matter was pretty risque um so with saying all that i do find that this movie can be a little difficult to get through uh especially if you are very tired um or just not really feeling it Though it is a really good movie, especially for its time, but if I'm rating it now, what I how I experienced it and what I thought of it now, um, I would have to give this one... Unfortunately, 3.5, 3.75 stars. Uh, probably 3.75 stars. Out of 5. Well, I, I would like to rebut, if I may, sir. Sure. Okay. And I want to rebut on two primary points. Now, I realize that you've gone and read into some other essays and definitely looked into it. And while I would definitely agree with intentionally or not the depression angle and how that can definitely warp one's opinion of self and therefore the projection that they would put on others, this is not schizophrenia. Um, Schizophrenia has nothing to do with actual visual hallucinations you don't see things it's all about what you perceive to be real with auditory hallucinations and or voices in your head and this isn't just oh i think i know this is literal life experience not personal i am not schizophrenic never have been not diagnosed um it and so that combined with the fact that the sexual abuse that you mentioned is it's alluded to vaguely it's never completely nailed down and it's never truly indicated even if you could argue that it was nailed down who or why so that's why I keep going back to the fact that instead of being unsettling and instead, because people, I mean, if you go to Wikipedia and you look under the critical response section, um, there are many more people who view this under the light that Tim has, uh, under the lens that Tim views it with the things that they're able, you're able to find more things with multiple viewings and all that kind of stuff. And I'm definitely not trying to take that away because it's, it's viewed as quote, repulsion is widely considered a classic of the psychological thriller genre. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I just, again, for me, looking at it that way, I, I can't agree with the schizophrenia aspect of it. Um, it just plays out with, instead of being unsettling, it's just confusing. So, I don't know. I mean, would, do you have any response to that, sir? 
discussions with Matt and Tim part two. <laughs> I know we haven't had one of these in a while, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's, I, I don't know. Like, this is just one of those movies where it's like, I think you can take, depending on who you are, you know, and how you look at things, this is definitely a movie that, uh, that people can ponder and wonder or, or make their own, um, assumptions or take what they want from this movie um because it is i i I don't know i just think there's more to her character uh especially there there, there's definitely an issue a psychological issue wrong with this woman especially with how uh how there are guys and she is she is encountered by two different guys uh sexually romantically uh, forced sexually, even, and True. it doesn't. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't end great with either of them. And she even has this. Yeah, she doesn't. She that's even has this altercation mildly. with. What's that? I said that's putting it mildly. Yeah, and she even has this altercation with uh, her sister's uh, boyfriend, who uh, she she has this water glass, and she is kind of obsessed. With this water glass that she has, but this guy keeps putting his toothbrush, his comb, and all, you know, his toiletry stuff in this glass because he probably thinks that oh, it's a glass to keep your stuff in, but really she wants that. I mean, that's for her to drink water or you know, put mouthwash in, whatever, and that that really kind of pisses her off. Um, but on top of that, you have the, uh, the these two rape scenes. That happen uh, during I, I I think the one the first one happens midway through the, the movie, and the second one happens you know you're hitting the uh, I, I guess the eighty percent mark of the film, and I really do that signifies a greater uh, a, a greater depth to her character, which then I think it was the second time it happens where it just clicked where it's like oh shit well that's why she's acting this way. That's why that whenever that she has these spells that whenever she looks at, you know, maybe I, I think the cracks, the cracks that she sees in the ceiling or in the wall when they come apart, that's that's her coming apart. You know, that's like symbolism. That's symbolic for herself. Her, you know, she's kind of breaking away from reality. She's tr- she's breaking away from herself. And there's also whenever after she kills somebody, well, Spoiler alert, after she kills somebody, <laughs> it shows her each time doing domestic things. Like I she's either ironing or she's, you know, she's sewing, she's crocheting or sewing or whatever. You know, as if nothing happened. Okay, so then I would have to I would have to counter that with this. So you when I'm looking at the um when I'm looking at the cracks in the wall and I'm looking at the disassociative behavior for me, I think that that's where the movie, where where you're seeing those things. I agree. Those are very easy things. Not easy. Let me rephrase that. Those are definitely valid things to take away from the from the way you're viewing that movie. But the mundane is when you're trying to be display someone who's had a psychological break, and you're looking at someone who's you're you're taking that. A metaphor of the the wall splitting the ceilings but as your personality splitting and, the, and as a person breaking see that for me again is not unsettling 
that's not that's just you're just watching something bad happening to someone and then when you see the disassociative nature of that with the ironing with you know the cleaning or whatever the crocheting you're not it, it again it's not psychological thriller at that point it's just you're just watching a character you know be disassociative which I guess if you're trying to, when you're trying to make sense of it as a whole from the way she acts at the beginning of the movie, um, as someone who is disassociative of even her job, she bites her nails all the time. She's a manicurist. I mean, for fuck's sake, what the hell are you doing? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, I mean, it's establishing character, which again is good for a vision under direction, but not necessarily anything that's going to bring a horror it, it again it just kind of it for me and i, I mean i don't think we're going to be convincing each other of anything but i mean i just to give you a to to show you where my mindset is i guess when visualizing this it's it's just kind of weird it's not it's not unsettling it's not thrillerish it's not psychological break it's just okay we're looking at the behavior of someone and then when we try and if you and when you are putting actual psychological labels on this of, of issues and disorders you're now i think further removing yourself from the idea that this should be scary um i think you know okay i think a really good way to 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 juxtapose that in in something that i found to be scary or unsettling for a horror movie was the remake of Halloween. And I, I'm sorry I'm going off on a tangent here, but I, I'm, maybe this will help you at least understand where I'm coming from. Uh, not necessarily agree, but just kind of understand where I'm coming from. So just bear with me. Michael Myers is a kid who is completely fucked in the head, and he is a complete sociopath. Has no understanding one way or the other of right or wrong. Gets locked up, put into a mental institution. And he is treated by a doctor under the assumption of being a sociopath who has whatever myriad of or disorders, and so there's tapes and there's everything else. But it's not about being a sociopath. Homeboy is just fucking evil. And it goes beyond and by setting it up in that light and by trying to have these people treat him as a mental case and treat him appropriately even worse you can see how it's not working and it's not making a difference and it's just getting worse and his mind is shutting down and is shutting down and is shutting down not because of any psychological but because he is simply evil and then when he eventually gets out you're like, holy fuck, he's out. And even when he kills the uh, the the guard, uh, Danny Trejo plays the guard. I was always good to you. I was always good to you. And he just squeezes and breaks his head. It's not about being a sociopath anymore. It's at that point that you see just how evil he is. That is unsettling scary. That is not being able to wrap your head around something. And it's just versus a difference of... Oh, I killed somebody in the shower, and we've already established that I'm weird and uh, psychologically uh, impaired. Now I'm just going to go and have a disassociative behavior. 
So that is where the break comes for me. But even, I can even say, when comparing that versus the beginning of the film for her gives me more, uh, I, I believe for you and also showing to me that it does give Polanski a little bit more credence for trying to string it together. So I don't know. Am I completely off my gourd here or do you at least have a picture for you? I don't know. I don't even no, know. No, no. I mean, it, it makes sense. But I think like with me, some of the best uh, or I think like we were talking about subgenres of, of horror and that um, as you know, it, a horror movie doesn't have to be completely about a psychopath, you know, a, a mad killer who just kills to kill. Uh, for it to be a horror movie. I mean, there are subgenres. And I think one of the most compelling uh, aspects of horror is, or one of the more uh, compelling uh, subgenres or horror, is the type of horror that anybody watching it can have, can understand, or or, uh, is direct, can be directly affected by it. Because it can happen to anyone uh, like schizophrenia, psychological, pathological disorders. I mean, anybody can crack, or anything can. Anybody can become can ha- be schizophrenic, or you know, just something can happen to anyone. Uh, well, I mean, something has to cause it, obviously, to where they snap, and that alone can be scary. I mean, that could be the basis of horror, depending, of course, depending on on the movie, and. I think, uh, and I think um, with Repulsion, though it does have faults, especially nowadays, people that will notice that uh, it it kind of it takes its time, uh, as we both have noted. Um, I think for the '60s, though, this was something to be frightened about. I mean. In the 60s, you don't have movies about this showing a beautiful... I mean, she, this, she was a beautiful woman. Beautiful, attractive woman. Uh, people can relate to that. Uh, beautiful young girls can relate to that. Um, a manicurist. Many women at that time can uh, relate to that. And she... Ha- and, and, you know, she's going through all this stuff. And I don't know. To me, I think, in a way, whereas that was a basis... Of a of a of a of a ingenious uh, horror movie, though it is, I think, definitely more of a psychological horror. It still carries on to now, because I just think it's it's well made. Uh, but it's it's very interesting how you know just one. Uh, it takes one movie, a one I think uh, a finely crafted movie. Uh, it takes people to have a, a different outlook on how they watch it or, or what they take from the elements of the story to where we can have these <laughs> these these little con- these conversations and rebuttals uh, about it. I mean, it would be great now if we had the ability to have Roman Polanski on the show to tell us his thoughts about making the movie and if, if there were any uh, ideas or any... Uh, you know, any, any, um, I, I guess if there, if there was definitely like a mode of, uh, of inserting any, like any sort of politics, uh, into it, or if it, things just kind of fell into place, you know, how they were, I don't know, but it's interesting though. Indeed. Indeed. And now concluding discussions with Matt and Tim part two. 
<laughs> we all guess are moving to uh, 1973's Don't Look Now, uh, which is the, uh, it's a British Italian film. It's de- uh, directed by Nicholas Reg, or Roeg, or Rogue depending on how you want to pronounce that. Uh, and it's an occult thriller. It's uh, And it's actually it's based on a short story. Uh, it stars Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland as a husband and wife team who are going to Venice after their, the death of their daughter. Um, Donald Sutherland's character has been has received a commission for a church, uh, to, to restore a church, and... You know, just kind of get away from everything and hopefully try to keep the marriage going and everything. So they come across a pair of uh, a pair of sisters, one of whom is a psychic, and at the start of which Julie Christie's character is rather taken aback by the abilities of the sisters and said psychic. Whereas Donald Sutherland is rather bemused. However, as the film carries on, more and more elements are added to both the appearance and the importance of the sisters and said psychic and the actual outcome of the events specifically pertaining to Donald Sutherland. Now, when Tim and I had initially discussed these movies, I was telling Tim, I was like, man, this sounds so familiar. And he's like, yeah, it's got Donald Sutherland. And I was like, man, I'm pretty sure I've seen this again. It turns out I have seen this movie before. It's literally been almost 20 years since I have seen this movie. (laughs) I was thinking back. This was back when I lived in Federal Way. Uh, Speaking of your trip to Seattle. And, uh... I liked the movie then. I really, really like this movie now. Mainly because I really enjoyed... I thought this was a great build-up. Mainly because you have a guy who seems, as I said, very bemused by the idea of what the psychic is capable of, but very rapidly starts to believe in the negative aspects of what psychics can do. Um questioning his own uh, and as a result questioning his own sanity and i really think especially having just previously coming off of repulsion uh i think this really exemplifies unsettling okay and and i know i we were talking about and i was referring to halloween but this this isn't it's not the this guy doesn't have a psychological problem so that's why i was making the comparison to halloween however this one here is overall very just kind of, it, it's just creepy because, and it's designed to be that, especially because with the psychic aspect and you know, dead child and of course, you know, visions and everything, all of these things touch on reality enough to keep the movie grounded, but allow anybody who's got even the remotest possibility of an open mind to buy in to the possibility that this guy could be experiencing things or his wife could be experiencing things that are truly psychic. That being said, the movie is still from the 70s and has its flaws, mainly that, once again, we hit a length issue here. Um, I think the third act of this film... um, tries to pay off a little too soon actually um given the way that 
the pacing was built going into it so that the last few minutes of the film, you're just kind of left going, oh man, it's almost like you can see it coming. It's still fun to watch the ending, and I still really enjoyed it, but I really felt that the third act was almost rushed and created an ending that took too long to take place and um, and and literally odyssey coming that being said still really enjoyed the movie this is by far um my favorite movie of this week four stars really really like this movie um it's from the 70s so given aging you're going to notice aging issues with it. However, in terms of horror and great storytelling, spot on, four stars. What do you think, Tim? It really means it really means a lot how this movie came out in 73, but it still holds up today. Um despite its really weird, overlong and risqué sex scene between the the well-built and ruggedly oh, yeah. handsome Donald Sutherland. <laughs> I totally forgot about that part. I don't know how I could have. Maybe and, they could have shortened. There you go. Maybe they could have t- taken that out. Yeah, it would have, no, it would have shortened length. the movie by 15 minutes. <laughs> or it would have felt that way. Uh, um, it, I mean, okay, other than that, and once you kind of... I mean, honestly, what really saves that sex scene from just being, like, utterly ridiculous is the editing of it uh where the 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 cutting and uh, overall i think that can be uh th- that's one thing to note about the uh the greatness of this movie how well it was made uh because you have a lot of scenes and i noticed this with, with repulsion also but fell to mention uh like for when she was when she get uh, is getting uh raped um you don't hear any of the noises you hear like bells or you hear the ticking of a clock or of a timer or or something like that and it's just very um a, a fascinating way to keep the audience engaged and not completely repulsed um but it's the same way in, in this movie uh, especially with going back to him c- trying to connect the dots or the audience connecting the dots with some of the events that are happening around this uh, couple and um, and what they're experiencing emotionally, or mainly what he is experiencing emotionally. What I found very interesting about this movie also is that um, it, I think in a way, accurately depicts a man and a woman trying to get through grief. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily maybe a stereotypical way of looking at it, but I think it is a way that we are all very familiar in seeing, which is uh, the woman, uh, the wife, finding a way to overcome the feelings, and the man just kind of uh, just just putting up with it, dealing with it, and trying to move on. Donald Sutherland's character doesn't believe in... Uh, the afterlife. He doesn't believe in ghosts. He doesn't believe in seances. He doesn't believe in uh, the blind woman or the two women who uh, are able to speak and see and talk to their dead daughter. He just doesn't believe any of that. Yet he doesn't understand that all of these warnings are are being thrown at him, but he decides not to, you know, not to not to take them seriously which you know 
eventually leads to something. And I'm not going to say what it is, obviously, but it leads to something. And it's it's very interesting because the setting, it's in Rome, and it's very creepy, it's very dreary. Uh, there's a language barrier, which always adds some uh, layers, some form of uh, uh, very interesting, creepy, aesthetic layers to a film like this, let alone just a horror movie in uh, or a scary movie in, in general. And that definitely adds to what you could say is the scariness of the movie. You don't have things that pop out at you, that pop out on the screen. You don't have like big orchestrational, you know, moments when, you know, something happens or doesn't happen, but there's a commanding boom or strum of a violin that really, you know, sends a jolt up your spine. No, it does, this movie doesn't have it. It's nuanced, yet it's very entertaining to watch because it's character progression you think something's going to happen and something might happen or it might not happen or excuse me or it might uh or it might happen and it's all about the characters it's all about the story and it's all about the acting and it just works wonderfully because you really don't know what's going on and it's just ultimately it's sad especially when Kiefer, or it's Kiefer, especially when Donald Sutherland's character, when he, as a father, is tries, just wants to find his daughter. Once he realizes that there could be something, and he just doesn't know what it is. And it doesn't matter if it's not what he thinks it is. It could be something horrible, but you know what? He's going to try everything in his might to capture the little, per or the, uh, to capture what he thinks is the his daughter and his are uh, his daughter wearing the red jacket that he sees you know throughout the movie and it's it's an it's an interesting movie it's it's very good despite uh, some of its flaws i give this one 4.5 out of 5 right on okay well then i guess we'll um have to wait and see whether or not uh, this proves to be our highest rated film together this week with <laughs> The Loved Ones, the 2009 Australian horror film written and directed by Sean Byrne and starring Xavier Samuel and Robin McLeavy. Um, all right, so this is a movie that tries to be equal parts Texas Chainsaw Massacre, People Under the Stairs, and... Um, Oh, fuck. Stephen King film, a uh, book turned into a movie, a James Caan author gets trapped. <clears throat> Misery. Thank you. Misery. Tries to be... Oh, God. I, was total, I hate those fucking brain farts. Jesus. Um, yeah. It tries to be those things uh, with, with a dash of... Carry, I guess, because it's high school shit. And let me tell you right now, this film fucking fails on all counts. The acting is terrible. The writing is stupid. Every dumb slasher, gory, grossed out trope is done poorly in this movie. Um, this is definitely made, uh, as far as I'm concerned, by kids, for kids, and, uh, in my world, never twain shall meet. Um, it's kind of inventive in terms of 
uh, how open they were with being crazy and stuff once they get the protagonist locked up in a house. Um, but, but other than that, yeah. I mean, I didn't quite completely hate the movie, but I definitely really, really, really didn't like it. I thought it was stupid and overall a waste of time. One and a half stars. And I am done. Bring us home, sir. I hate to say this, but I am the complete opposite. I thought, despite a a major flaw, for sure, that I'll get to in a second, I thought this was a really good addition to the torture, violent, you know, whatever genre of horror movie. You know, it was a good addition to all that. Um, I thought, honestly, I thought virtually everything about this movie was perfect. I thought the acting was really good. I mean, it was... Everybody did a really good job. I mean, they played their character, I thought, as well as uh, as they could have, especially for the story. And everybody worked well. I mean, the, the movie, the plot, the, the plot line itself, the overall story is ridiculous. And I guess once I real, once I, you know, found out what it was about, I just, you know, went along with it. From the opening of it, I went along with it. Um, I thought the director was very talented. His use of music, his uh, not using of music during certain parts of the movie. I mean, it, he just knew what he was doing. And, you know, with that, I really enjoyed it. Um, but there was one thing that I thought uh, was definitely a flaw in the movie. And though vir- virtually everything about it I thought was perfect, um, it what was not perfect was the story progression and that it, that is definitely what hurts this movie uh, i say story progression because the movie chooses to focus on two characters just for the sake of misleading the audience for about a 30 second sequence once you think this is going to happen to, uh, to I, you know, it's just one of those things where you think something's going to happen, or I don't want to say it without ruining it, but it's just for the sake of misleading the audience. And it'll be obvious, I think it will honestly be obvious when you once you realize, and it happens pretty quick, that there will not be any ties between the main action, what's going on, and the, the and their action going on. But with saying that, their stuff was well acted, despite really not needing those two characters at all. I mean, I don't know if it was filler or what. I mean, it was still enjoyable. It was just kind of way too obvious. Uh, but again, well acted. There was some very funny bits. There was character progression with the, uh, you know, with the character that, you know, we didn't really need. Um, so I, you know, I give this movie, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I give this one 4.25. I liked it. It was short, sweet, and it had a pretty good pace to it. Well, it's just not worth it, folks. We're just going to let it go. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So next week, the movies are going to be Fury and ABCs of Death 2. The horror flicks, we're going to focus on a horror trilogy for next week. The Psycho Trilogy. Psycho from 1960, Psycho 2 from 1983, and Psycho 3 from 1986. Now, we're not sure if it's going to be playing um, in a venue that I'm going to have access to or that Tim will maybe have time to see in addition to everything else we're watching. 
but I do know that we both desperately want to see Birdman. So if we can get to it, Birdman will probably be on the list next it's week as playing, well. It's it's going to be playing near me, but it's not going to be playing it's going to be playing at the draft house n- until I think November 7th for you. Well, there I, you I, go. as of this afternoon, so I don't know if that's going to yeah, change. Yeah, I was searching it and Fandango is only linking me with AMC and none of the AMCs in my area have it, so Oh, really? Um yeah. And in, and I saw one for Austin Alamo Draft House, but not Houston. So I'm, I'll look into it. I'm definitely doing, going to do everything I can to see that movie. So hopefully we'll have that on the list too, as well. But definitely Fury, ABCs of Death 2, which you should be able to get on VOD for those of you who follow along. And then of course the, uh, the horror trilogy this year is going to be the Psycho trilogy. So I guess that, uh, brings us to the end and the spiel. Am I right, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, with the exception of our special horror segment, which music is going to be all public domain and credited on our website, slscast.com, the majority of the music that you hear will be, of course, as always, provided by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash cries of solace as for us we of course are still the sls cast and you can check us out at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can follow me personally this is matt on twitter at knit twit one two three four five you can follow the yellow brick road and try and find tim on twitter you can send us an email too the show, all one word, the show at slscast.com. You can even subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. As a matter of fact, you can even search us on Facebook and like us there as well. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Anne Hathaway, I get to say this. I've always believed in people's capacity for goodness. I still believe that people are good. What I'm not so trusting about anymore is their relationship to their own goodness. Bikini drive-ins, guys. Bikini drive-ins. Demand them. Or not. It's weird. FDA or health department, get on that shit. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.